0: Welcome to the fifth wave of Rising Tide, the ocean podcast. This is your host, David Helvarg. We at Blue Frontier, along with the Center for the Blue Economy, recently held a five-hour webinar for over 700 people to advance our Ocean Climate Action Plan. Some of you may know it as the Blue New Deal. The day was full of inspiration and solutions in the midst of our pandemic frustrations. We'll play some highlights in future episodes. But for now, here's a quick 90 second sampling from a few of our keynote speakers, including U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon, Congresswoman Deb Holland of New Mexico, and indigenous youth activist, Francesca de Oro of Guam.
1: We also need a blue new deal, focused on the preservation and sustainability of our oceans and coastal marine systems. And what would that kind of Blue New Deal look like? Well, it's investments in natural barriers and coastal habitats, in living shorelines and salt marshes and seagrasses and dunes and uh, oyster reefs and coral reefs. It's um, guidelines for offshore renewable energy, wind energy, wave energy, tidal energy.
2: As noted in the Ocean Climate Action Plan, protecting marine areas ensures food security preserves biodiversity and protects coasts and blue carbon ecosystems in the face
1: of climate change and ocean acidification. We cannot fight against the storm coming, nor can we navigate out of it completely. In fact, it's already here. This is the moment before we take the plunge into the unknown ocean of possibilities, the moment where we must remember our purpose on this journey, the moment where we must remember what we owe one another, especially those who hold the wisdom to guide us forward, and the children who will take our place in the future.
0: That was cool. And now we'll continue with a hammerhead doubleheader of interviews. We start with 13-year-old Dakota Peebler of the youth organization Heirs to Our Oceans that helped organize the Youth Advisory Council for the Ocean Climate Action Plan. We'll then speak with Dr. Nancy Knowlton, one of the world's leading authorities on coral reefs, Nancy recently retired as head of the Smithsonian Institution's Marine Sciences Program, although she still runs their Earth Optimism Summit. And yes, we'll definitely ask about that one. But first, let's meet Dakota Peebler.
1: My name is Dakota Peebler. I'm um, 13, and I'm a huge advocate for our oceans. I have always really had a deep connection to our ocean, starting when I was very little in the tide pools. And since then I've really looked into marine mammals and sea otters in particular. And they've just fascinated me. And I started to learn about just how many impacts um, marine mammals are facing due to um, human activity. So I wanted to do something about it.
0: So back to the tide pools.
1: Yeah, so the tide pools. So shout out to my mom who took us to the tide pools. Um, almost every week when we were little and we'd look around and we trying try to find different creatures like sea stars and sea snails. And what saddened me was um, eventually we started to see less and less um, sea stars. And that is a result of the sea star wasting disease that is prevalent along California's coast. Um, but the tide pools always fascinated me and that really sparked my passion for the ocean. And as i learned more about you know human impacts i really wanted to do something about it so when i was around nine years old i went to my mom and i said our oceans are dying we need to do something about this and um my mom said you're right like let's let's pull something together so we brought together around 13 kids and we started Airshore Oceans, and then it was a small little group of homeschooling kids, and... And you're homeschooled. I am homeschooled, yes, and it's just branched from there into this international um, organization that has over 300 heirs worldwide.
0: So how does it work, like, in terms of your interests, You were interested in the tide pools, you yeah. saw the decline of the sea stars starfish to those of us less politically correct. Um, And otters played a role somewhere.
1: Um, So as I was interested in the oceans, that really sparked my interest in marine mammals, specifically the sea otters. And I remember, I would think I was either nine or 10, I went on some kayaks and I saw this baby sea otter, and it was crying, and it was all alone. And I, you know, I was worrying because I didn't know, you know, was the mother dead? Was it an orphan pup? So I just stayed back because I didn't want to disturb it, and I just watched for a little bit. And the mother came back, and it was this beautiful experience. And I went home, and I knew that I wanted to make sure that um, my future generations could see the things that I've seen in my lifetime, and that was what really sparked my passion. Um, to protect our planet. And that's really started my focus area. So each uh, founding area in oceans has a certain area of um, focus. And it's either an ocean's natural resource or a human impact. And I started to focus on sea otters, but it turned into land-sea pollution and its effects on um, marine animals. I knew that I wanted to get real information. So, I contacted a um, couple sea otter um, researchers and experts, and the first woman who replied back was Dr. Melissa Miller. She is a sea otter pathologist. She was my first expert in airstore oceans, and I asked her if I could have an interview with her about her work. and. I was invited to watch her do a sea otter necropsy, which is where they take um, a dead sea otter that has been found and they um, examine it, the outside and the inside, um, to see how it died. And I saw her do the necropsy and it turned out that the sea otter had died from a shark bite that had turned into a bacterial infection. Um, And that was the moment that I knew that this was gonna be my passion for the rest of my life and this was the career I wanted to go into was conserving um, sea otters. And after that, I started presenting about sea otters to schools and to anywhere I could. And something that really interested me was cause of mortality in sea otters. Um, And so I started looking into the different threats and one big one was land sea pollution. So that's pollution that originates on land and ends up in the ocean. And um, whether that was you know, bacteria or pathogens, such as Toxoplasma gondii, which comes from actually cats. <laughs> um, and uh, another big one that I had no idea about was chemical fertilizer overuse and it ending up in our oceans and triggering harmful algal blooms. And sea otters are actually being really affected today, especially in California due to um, domoic acid coming from the uh, this certain harmful algal bloom that happens a lot in California. And I wanted to do something about that. So I started a fertilizer initiative with some other heirs. And our goal is to get um, commercial fertilizer, Um, reduced in California, and we've been working with the Ocean Protection Council and state and federal legislators. I
0: remember in 2017 at our Blue Vision Summit, you were uh, lobbying with the California delegation, and uh, was that your first time lobbying uh, politicians, elected officials?
1: That was that was my first time ever talking to a, you know, a policymaker, and of course I was, you know, very very nervous. But that that experience at Blue Vision Summit was a huge learning experience for me, and it really sparked you know, this confidence that I could talk to these people and make a difference for my generation as a young person who is going to be affected by the decisions that are being made today. It's become clear that our planet is being hurt at a daily basis, and it's coming to a point where we don't have time to wait anymore. We don't have time to just fund research. We need action now, and I think kids worldwide are seeing this. Like, we are going to be the ones who are going to be facing this issue when we're adults. So let's do something now, why wait? You know, why wait till we've graduated college? We have the power and we deserve to have a say in the decisions that are being made for our planet, for our future, and the way that we stay connected is definitely um, through technology. We have a a virtual hub that we have on our uh, website that's just for heirs to keep in touch and spread about what they're doing and so that we can really push their movement outwards. And um, let people know about what everyone's doing. We just had a boy um, from New Zealand who is a um, Indigenous. Um, I'm pretty, pronouncing this wrong. Maori. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he just started a Aristotles Club, and he went to our seal, and super excited about what he's going to do. Um, but yeah, that's really how we really um, branch out internationally.
0: What would you say to young people listening? What What would you suggest? How do they get in touch?
1: Um, Well, if you would like to be an heir of AirStore Oceans, contact us at www.info at airstoreoceans.org.
0: And what do you want for your 14th birthday?
1: For my birthday, I hope that every child will know that they have the power to make change.
0: See, and I would have gone for like a new buoyancy vest for diving, (laughs) but where where do you get your, your stoke in the ocean? You started with tide pooling. What do you do now to stay wet and salty?
1: I am a diver. So I love to dive wherever I can. Um, I love cold water, unlike my mom, absolutely. And cold
0: water, so you've dived in the kelp forest yes. here in California. Yeah,
1: I actually went diving when there was the big, um, like, jellyfish. Bloom. You know? Yeah, bloom, and um, that was the most amazing experience. Just all around you, you just see jellyfish. It's like serene, different planet almost.
0: It is a different world.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And now a word about, well, us, Blue Frontier.
2: If you're enjoying this episode of Rising Tide, the ocean podcast with David Helvarg, help us get the word out. Tell your friends, family, neighbors, or dive partners to subscribe and follow us on social media. We're raising the voices of ocean heroes from sea to shining sea. And if you have any ideas of what you like on the show, please contact our host, David Helvard, helvard at bluefront.org.
0: My friend Nancy Knowlton, who's a leading ocean scientist, she graduated from Harvard, taught at Yale, did tropical reef research with Smithsonian and Panama. She was the sand chair for marine science at the Smithsonian. The better people you get, the longer the bios. She co-founded the Center for Marine Biodiversity and Conservation at Scripps with her equally well-known ocean scientist husband Jeremy Jackson. Now lives on the coast of Maine with Jeremy, and although they were once known as Doctors Doom and Gloom, Nancy's since also founded the Earth Optimism Summit. So that's a good place to start. What the hell do we have to be optimistic about? And let's talk about that 71% of the Earth at saltwater.
2: Sure. Well, it it is true that sometimes it feels like Optimism is out of place, but actually, it turns out there's a lot more to be optimistic about than most people realize. Um, For example, in the coast of Maine, where I am, there are now lots of ospreys and bald eagles. And why are those there? Those are there because quite a while ago now we banned DDT and uh, allowed those birds of prey to come back. And the dams are coming down on a lot of the rivers in Maine. And that means that. fish that need to go up rivers in order to reproduce are now uh, coming back in large numbers when they weren't there before. And those fish then go back to the ocean and feed things like bald eagles, also striped bass, and all sorts of things that we care about. So there is a lot going on in the the sense of when we care about something and we want to fix it, often if we actually take the steps to fix it, things do recover. And speaking more, of course, Maine's just one tiny bit of the ocean. Ocean's a big place. But when you think about the fact that the Chesapeake Bay is a lot uh, cleaner than it was, that a lot of fisheries are now much better managed than they used to be, Uh, the seagrass has come back to Tampa Bay, uh, around the world. Actually, there are a lot of examples. They just tend to get drowned out by all the overwhelming and legitimate bad news. Uh, And to the extent that even strange thing is that even people who are in the business of conservation often don't know the success stories that are out there.
0: And so you're optimistic. You talk about marine protected areas. You talk about the return of turtles in Hawaii or birds in Maine, ospreys, and what what were your other... Favorite you And can then cleaning that. up,
2: but cleaning up pollution is something that actually people are pretty good to, at doing once they put their minds to it. I mean, the the story I, I tell of the recovery of seagrasses in Tampa Bay is a really powerful one for me because not only did it had was it announced several years ago that seagrasses, having been essentially destroyed, were back to 1950s level, which is an amazing success story. But what was really crazy was that almost everyone I talked about to in the marine conservation world had never heard the story. <laughs> I mean, it cropped up in the mo- news cycle, was around, bounced around for 48 hours and then disappeared. And we, so I incorporated it and no one else had heard it apparently. And so even people who do this sort of thing for a living had no idea. I found that staggering. And that was what partly what motivated me to work even harder to shine a spotlight on these successes. I will
0: confess, we had a Blue Vision Summit, Florida and St. Pete. And it was until the middle of the summit when the mayor started talking and this biologist, I said, well, I, I thought, you know, it got polluted and all the hammerhead sharks left. He says, They're all, hammerheads are all back. The eelgrass is back. It's happening.
2: What it is is a call to action. We've got to do a much better job talking about what we've accomplished in order to get more people on board. To I still remember giving a talk at, the, at Woods Hole. Um, and it was a public talk. And at the end, an eight-year-old boy uh, raised his hand and said, but what can I do? And, and every time I gave a talk, I would be asked that in one form or another that question, and I think it's um, it's kind of a truism. Everyone always says I'm optimistic because of young people and all the how much they care and how much they're fighting, but the reality is, they ha- young people haven't been doing that for a while, and it is really important that they're doing it now. It will make a difference. And then the other thing, great thing, I think about talking about solutions, is although we. I mean, we are undoubtedly in a time of incredible partisanship and division in this country. Often, when you talk about things that are working, it's easier to get people to come together rather than t- talking about things that we should do. This that tends to bring out partisan divides between the people who who want to do that and some the other people who think that view that thing, whatever it is, as a threat. Whereas, if you can sort of tell the story of an amazing success, it doesn't eliminate divisions, but I think it diminishes divisions.
0: California is a great example. I talked to John McCosker, who's uh, one of the white shark experts out there, and he said, you know, the return of the white shark in the California ecosystem is a great story, a great success story for the ecosystem and problematic for the recreational water user.
2: <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah, no, amazing things came back when they stopped uh, gill nets near shore. All sorts of big predators that used to get trapped in these gill nets are now coming back. So... Yeah, it's it's amazing when people put their mind to it uh, and and really try to make a difference. Well, in addition to all this conservation stuff that we've been talking about, which is my bread and butter these days, it's also the case that there's so much about the ocean that we just don't know. There's a lot of amazing stuff to just discover, and it it's magical. And I think that's a that's also a part of getting people inspired. I mean, there's something about the ocean that really s- strikes at you know, at people's hearts.
0: And what do you, you and Jeremy, do to dis- rediscover the ocean up in Maine?
2: We go kayaking. It's a little cold for swimming. He's gone swimming. I haven't gone swimming. Kayaking just around shore, and um, just and just looking at the ocean. And you know, it is beautiful enough and healthy enough to really make me smile every morning when I wake up.
0: If you enjoy Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast, please subscribe. Get your friends to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, email, however you find your podcast. If you'd like to advertise on Rising Tide, please contact us at info at And now, a word from our original sponsors. Rising Todd's music is written and performed by Ethan Kenvarg. Rising Todd is a project of the Blue Frontier. For more information, go to www.bluefront.org.